Well, y'all can take a seat. Good morning. It is so great to be with y'all again. Uh, My name is Thomas, uh, uh, and many of you guys know me. I'm typically with our youth ministry across the street. There you go. Uh, But it is good to be with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, go to James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13. Um, But um, as you guys are turning there, I want to uh, introduce you to someone who's very, 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 very important to me. Uh, This is my daughter, Story. Okay, so she is about to turn one, um, which is unbelievable. Uh, She is our second, um, so I have a son who's almost four, Um, and so uh, as our high schooler students say, I'm getting old, right? That's what they, I'm 30, and it's like, they're like, you're old now. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, But uh, yeah, the story, she is happy, she smiles, she, she loves being around her family, like she just loves being around us. Um, and that, like she just reaches out for mom and dad. Um, but there's this strange thing that sometimes happens, right? When strangers or visitors come into the house, um, right? Her posture kind of changes a little bit. And so I want to show you a different picture, uh, right? These, these are a group of guys that meet at my house every Thursday, right? Uh, my son refers to them as the quote, big boys, right? Um, and so uh, some of our staff, we meet together and we pray and we study the word together and we discuss life together and um, right, when they come into the room, right, there's scary things, there's a beard going on here, right, there's like yellow hair, there's like, there's a lot happening, um, and her posture will change, right, she'll, she will tuck her head down, right, and, and just be like, I'm just not going to make eye contact, right, she's like, I'm just not going to look at them, it's scary, and she will just kind of like, just hide herself in me or uh, her mom, right, uh, my wife, so um, I, I tell you that because um, right, her hope, her world is kind of us as parents at this point, right? She's only uh, about, you know, 11 and a half months, right? And her hope, when, when things get stressful, right? When scary people with beards show up to the house, she's like, I'm, go- I'm holding on to dad, right? And I'm just going to lean in uh, to, to the safety net, to this thing that provides me comfort. And, and I tell you all that because this morning I want to talk about that question. I want to talk about this idea of where do you go when things are really stressful? Uh, another way to ask this is where is your hope, right? If you were to put yourself uh, in, in my, my daughter's shoes, right? Like what's the thing that when it shows, you know, like, you know, things show up that are scary or stressful and you say, I'm just going to hold on to this thing. This is my source of comfort in the midst of stress, anxiety, frustration, hardship, those things. Where is your hope? And where we are in the book of James, uh, it's amazing. He's going he's gonna to cover a lot of different topics, but he's trying to kind of debunk some things uh, for the, the audience that he is writing to. Right, And if you remember, uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of James, but the audience is a group of believers, right? They have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, but they are being heavily persecuted, right? They have been dispersed. They are on the outskirts of Jerusalem um, at this point. Many of them have lost property. Some of, they've been cut off from, from the welfare system of the synagogue, right? Because they have aligned themselves with the way of Jesus. They are no longer receiving support from the, the Jewish system, Right, if you can imagine, there is now division in their households between their parents, potentially, or siblings. They have watched some of their friends be persecuted or even killed because of the, their alignment with the way of Jesus. And so they are asking themselves, man, where can we turn to for hope? 
Where can we turn to when all of this stuff is coming at us? And what James is going to talk about, and what I'm going to try to talk about today is this. Our hope should not be in our own boastful plans or in our wealth, but in our compassionate and merciful God. I want to read that again. Our hope should not be in our own boastful plans or in our wealth, but in our compassionate and merciful God. So if you have a Bible, go to James chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 13. And my first point is this, hoping in boastful planning leads to sin. Look what James says. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So you see this, right? James calls it out, right? He has no problem calling people out. And he says, okay, I want want to address a group of people in the room, right? And he says, those of you who boast about your plans today or tomorrow, right? I could could take a poll. The room could be divided between planners and non-planners. Some of you like non-planners, you're like, I just go with the flow. You're like, amen, like James, like I'm just vibing. I'm like preach, right? Like I'm fine not planning anything. And some of you are, right, you are hyper planners, right? You have the uh, agenda and, and, right, you hand it to your kids when they wake up in the morning. You're like, at 8 a.m. you will do this and then this and then this and that, right? And that's just the way your mind works. You have a schedule for yourself, right? And, and, and what James is, is beginning to try to call out here, he says, okay, we make our plans, And he says, that's fine. But he says, man, when you boast in your plans, he goes, that is arrogance and that is sin. And you cannot hope in your plans, right? They will fail you. You cannot plan your way out of hardship. He says, why? There's two arguments here. The first one is this. He says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, right? He says that in verse 13. He's like, yeah. Uh, Verse 14, he says, you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow, He's like, you can't control anything. You can't see down the, the future. And then, and then he says this, you are just a vapor, right? And his reader's like, ouch, okay, like, they, like put me into perspective. He's like, you are here today and gone tomorrow. The, the, the image that came into mind is actually that scene from Toy Story when Woody is yelling at Buzz, like, you are a toy, right? Like, you are a child's plaything. Like, he is telling them, like, this is who you are. Like, get your perspective right. Like, you are a vapor, and you have no ability to control the world, right? Which we often think we do. We wake up, and we're like, I have an alarm clock, and I wake up to it most of the time, right? And I get to work on time most of the time, right? And we think we can control our lives. But so often, like, we are out of control. Like, I think about this, um, right? I've been in youth ministry for 11 years now, right? And and youth ministry, I love it. It's like working with high schoolers just, like, keeps 
man, it just keeps you young, right? It, it keeps you, it's exciting, like it's, it's life-giving. Uh, but there's this consistent theme, right? We, we take retreats or we go on trips and, and high schoolers are horrible packers, like horrible planners. Like, like when we, we send out like a packing list and, and this is what you bring and like all this stuff. And so then we like inevitably we'll get there or we'll get to camp and they're, I'm like, where's your sleeping bag? And they're like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Uh, and they're, it's like, okay, what is deodorant? Deodorant? I supposed to bring that? And I'm like, yes. Like toothbrush? Like, no. They're like, but I do have like three boxes of airheads. Like, is that good for this weekend? And I'm like, no. Like, like there's an inability for them to like plan and like think about like all the different things I'm going to encounter. And it's like, you're going to need shoes. Like, come on. Like, uh, right. And, and, and what James is saying here, he's like, you guys, put, like, put it in perspective. You are a vapor. You have no control over what will happen in your life, right? So many times we think that. Like, I think about this past week for me. Like, I had an idea about um, what this week was going to look like. It's spring break, so all the college students are gone. And so I was like, I'm just going to, like, run free in the fields of College Station. And, like, <laughs> there's going to be no traffic, right? And, and it's going to be amazing. And... Uh, Right? And it's like, okay, I, I, I'm going to have time to prep the sermon and then like, take some time off. And, and like, I get to Monday, and I just start feeling horrible. I start feeling sick. I go to the doctor, and I, test, uh, 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 I get the flu and strep on Monday uh, and all this stuff. And so it's like, okay, all the plans I had are gone. Like, I'm in bed. I can, like, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine now. I'm, I'm fully recovered. But it's just like my week was just, like, blown up. And I just, it's just reminded as I'm studying this, it's like, I have no control over my life, right? I can become sick. I can become ill. I can become, right, like anything can happen. And I don't have any ability to control that. And James is just trying to remind us, you think we can plan our future. I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to get this job. And then I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to get rewarded and I'm going to get promoted. And I'm going to be able to buy a house and do the, and I'm going to have my life. And James says, if you boast, if you plan, he says, anything can happen that can be taken away from you. And he says, do not boast in your planning. So should we just not plan, right? Some of you are like, amen, like totally on board for that. Um, right? No, like I think actually planning is a good thing. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, right? He says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the others are still far, far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, Jesus is explaining this in terms of following him. Like, he's like, count the cost of following me. Like, there's general wisdom. Like, if you're gonna build a tower, you don't wanna be the laughing stock of the town when you can't finish it. So count the cost and plan out. Like, make sure you can do it. Right, Jesus is appealing to this idea like, hey, planning and the ability to look down the road is actually a good thing. That's a good skill to have. What James is targeting here is not planning, but it is boastful. It is the boastful planning. It is the arrogance. So what do we do? Look at verse uh, 15. He says this, Instead, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And I love that because it's so simple, right? He says, what I want you to do is acknowledge the sovereignty of the, of the Lord in your planning. He says, acknowledge that the Lord at the end of the day is the one who controls every outcome. I love what Colossians chapter one says, when it says, in him, Jesus, all things are made, and in him, all things are held together, right? There's a reality that exists, right? And Jesus holds all of it together, right? Our hearts are beating and all the, uh, uh, the blood flowing through our bodies the way that it's supposed to, and everything in us is held together by the power of Jesus. So we can't control anything, but we trust that Jesus holds it all together. He says, if the Lord wills. So we acknowledge God in our planning. Look what Proverbs chapter 16 says. It says, the, man, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I feel like it kind of encapsulates this tension, right? There's, there's good in planning, right? We should plan our way, but acknowledge the Lord is the one who directs us. The Lord is the one who actually, he's the one who controls everything. So it is arrogant for me to loop God out of the equation. So practically, how do we kind of root this out? I just want to give a few things here before going on to this next point. Prayer, right? Spend time in prayer before making big plans or making your plans. So often we make plans and we're like, God, here's, here's my options uh, or whatever. Like, I'm going to narrow it down to this. And then uh, you can, like, decide, like, should I wear a blue shirt or a, or a green shirt? You know, and you're like, we kind of loop God in at the very end. And really, we should be starting, man, our, the seasons of our lives, even, our, even each day we have, and we say, God, I have open hands. God, lead me today. What is your will for me for today? Right? We should lay that before God. One of the amazing tools that Scripture gives us is even fasting, right? Which is one of those spiritual disciplines we don't talk about often enough. But it's this idea of like, man, let me set aside some time to acknowledge my, my finiteness. The ability, like, if I just don't eat for a few days, I pass away. Like, it's just like, let me just acknowledge how limited I am and spend some time just seeking the Lord. And you'll be amazed at how often the Lord will speak in those moments and lead if the Lord wills. I think the second thing we can do is listen to the Spirit while carrying out our plans, right? We start our plans and, and, and invite God in over and over and over again, right, each and every day. I went into college studying mechanical engineering and left going to seminary, right? That was not my plan, right? And, and so the Lord often will redirect our steps. We should invite him in at all times. Now, there's some things Right? We don't have to like pray about, like, should I pay my taxes? Like, Lord, I don't know. Like, no, like, there are things that the Lord has revealed to us to do. We study his word, and we say, that is so clear. Right? Like, I should, I, I should behave this way. But there are so many things that the scriptures just don't comment on. And we should say, God, okay, give me wisdom in the midst of this. That posture, as we build that in, eliminates arrogance from us. But look what James says. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. He just calls it out. He says, it's not playful like to be like obsessed with planning and saying, I got all these, this is, I, I'm secure because of what I have done. He actually says, that's evil. He says, that does not come from God. That attitude 
of cutting God out of your plans and saying, I'm just going to, I'm going to, right, I'm going to invite God at the end. We're going to celebrate together, but I'm the one running the play. He says, that's evil. That kind of thinking does not come from God. And it's sin. My second point is this. Hope in fleeting wealth leads to judgment. Now, if you've been tracking with us in the book of James, right, James is not afraid to just call people out, and this is perhaps where he ratchets it up the most. Look what he says. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter and you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you, right? I can just imagine, they're like, oh, a letter from James. We're like, this is gonna be so fun, right? And they open up, they're like, whoa. Like, look at this language. Weep and howl and these things cry out against you. So I think, I think it's helpful to understand what's happening here. James's readers, were not largely that wealthy, right? Remember, they're persecuted. They're heavily burdened uh, by the people. Actually, in James chapter two, he talks about some of the things that were going on, right? He talks about this idea that he says, hey, it's the rich who are opposing you, right? They're the ones who drag you into court. They're the ones who take advantage of you. They're the ones blaspheming you. And so when you look at who James is talking to, right, he is saying that they're largely poor, um, and, and James kind of takes on this like prophetic hat for a second, and he says, I just want to comment on some of the dynamics that take place in our world. And he, he comments on a group of wealthy people who I, I believe is maybe largely outside of the church, but also serves as a warning for the wealthy who are a part of the church. And he says, man, you guys are mishandling your wealth, and you are putting too much stock in the things that you have, and it's corrupting you, and there will be judgment to pay. So there's two things I want to point out here. He says this, why does trusting in our wealth not work? He says, one, it will fade away. So look what he says. He says, come, uh, rich, weep and howl for your miseries. Verse two, your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have rusted. Right, he's seeing into the future, if you will. Right, and he's painting this picture He's saying, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, their wealth is not literally rusted right now in their hands, right? Their wealth is actually very powerful for them. But he's saying, I'm seeing into the future, and there's a day coming when you will stand before God, and everything that you have accumulated will pass away. It will, it'll rot. It'll, it'll rust, right? Like, um, I just picture, right, I love, I love to garden, right? I, I, joke, I joke with our, uh, our people all the time. I'm like, I'm not like a CrossFitter. The, the exercising I like is like, gardening, right? That's like more my speed, um, right? And uh, one of the things that happens are you plant these plants, and what happens? The first freeze comes through, all right? And, and the, some of those plants, a lot of the, the uh, plants will just freeze, and they'll wilt and become brown, and they'll just like kind of turn to mush. And he's like, that's the picture I want you to have of your wealth. Like, there is this judgment coming, and your wealth will pass away. You cannot bring it with you, right? And he says, putting your hope there 
will fail you because it'll pass away. It'll rust. It'll do nothing. When you stand before the judgment of God, your wealth will have no impact to help you. And he says, remember that. Look at what uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, right? This is talking about the rich man who is just storing up, you know, storehouses of goods for himself. And he's like, I have so much stuff. I'm just going to build more barns and store more stuff and build more barns. And then look what Jesus says. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Right? Jesus says, your wealth can't help you in the eternal life, right? It's like, you can't buy you anything. And Jesus even says, who will, someone else will get your riches, right? But tonight your life is demanded of you. The second thing is this, wealth can corrupt our hearts. Wealth can corrupt our hearts. Look what, just look at the language here in verse three, right? Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire, Right? And then he talks about the pay of the laborers that have been withheld. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived a life of pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts. Right? There's this picture he's painting. He's like, okay, you have allowed wealth to be the main thing for your life. And he says, you know what you're doing when you put all your stock there? He says, you're just fattening yourselves for the day of slaughter, right? Which does not end well for the one who is slaughtered, okay? Um, and he's saying, you are heaping judgment on yourself when you trust in your wealth. Now, there's a particular situation that was happening uh, within the church, I think, as he's commenting on this, right? You have this wealthy group. And if you were to think about how many jobs would have worked, the wealthy owned lots of land. And they would hire people to work the land, right? They would mow the fields. They would take care of harvesting the fruit or whatever was being produced on the land. And you have this picture of the wealthy saying, let me hire these workers, come out. You guys can work on the fields. And then in some way, they are withholding payment, right? Either in part or completely. And in that day, right, you didn't have these like massive bank accounts, right? A debit card. You often, the poor would live, man, I get paid and I use that to buy what I need for this week. And so to be cut off or to not be paid is literally to condemn and to murder someone, right? To say, I, you will not be fed this week. And, and James calls that out. You have condemned, verse six, and put to death the righteous man, and he wasn't even opposed to you. He says, you mistreated the poor. Now, wealth has this uncanny ability to make us value the wrong things, doesn't it? Right? We say, I want this stuff, uh, right? Getting stuff makes us want to get more stuff. Right? If anything proves that, it's Amazon, right? Because you can go onto Amazon, you're like, I just, I, I just need like a pack of sticky notes or whatever. Like you can just be looking for one thing. And then all of a sudden your cart's like, you have like a hairbrush for your cat in there. And you're like, I need it. I need this, right? It's just like when you have access to so much and it's so easy, it's easy just to keep heaping on stuff, right? And it just makes you want more stuff and more stuff. And James is saying, hey, you got to watch out for this. You got to keep this in check. And I think what's amazing, he gives this title here, right? The Lord, in verse four, the Lord of Sebaoth or Sebaoth, um, right? It's not a typo. It's not supposed to be Sabbath or anything like that, right? It's literally the Lord of hosts. And he says, man, God sees the poor. 
Man, if, and people who mistreat the poor, it looks like no one is there to defend them. But he says, but the Lord of, of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of the angelic realm, he sees them and he stands ready to defend them. And there will be judgment for how we have treated those who are poor. And one thing I want to say before moving on, man, if we are in a position in this room of power where we have employees, where we have people who work for us or under us, man, it should be our, it is our obligation as believers to pay them fairly and on time, right? We should not withhold payment from people who have worked and earned it, right? We should be, we, we should be generous in that way, right? We should be um, more than willing to pay fairly people. We should not take advantage of people. Now, I want to talk about wealth real quick, because a lot of times we just hear that and we're like, money equals bad, right? So what do I do with this? Um, I want to say two things about money. When, when Scripture talks about finances and talks about wealth, there's two kind of big categories. One is to see it as a blessing, right? Wealth is often seen as a blessing from God, and it's a signification of like, like hey, this is, this is a signal that, that God's favor is on this person. But then there's also warnings given with uh, having a lot of wealth. So I just want to point out a few of these scriptures. Look at Proverbs 13. I, just, I love this passage because he says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So he's saying, man, if you are a good man, if you are a responsible uh, person, right, you leave an inheritance to your children. He says that's a good thing to do, to save your money in such a way that you have something to pass along to your offspring and to your grandchildren, and so on. He says, that's a really good thing, right? Look at this in uh, Proverbs 21. There is a precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but the foolish man swallows it up. And he says, hey, there's wisdom in saving your stuff, right? It's actually the unwise. The fool just spends everything he has or has nothing. The wise actually stores up treasure and oil, Right? in his house, which is kind of like, man, he has stuff, to, like he has resources to use to help the people that he loves. But there's also warnings given. Look at this, Matthew chapter six, no one can serve two masters. This is Jesus speaking. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says it plainly. Man, wealth has this ability to compete for our affections from, from the Lord. And he says, if you have wealth, you need to just check that. You need to ask yourself, man, am I over-prioritizing this? Am I valuing my, my checkbook and my bank account over the people in my life? Have I even considered how I can use the wealth that I've been given to help the, those that are around me? Right? Again, having money is not a bad thing. That is a blessing from the Lord. But it comes with a warning. Do not let money be your God. And then lastly, in Hebrews, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert, desert you, or will I forsake you, right? He says, watch out for the love of money, right? Watch out for that, 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 that sprout of, of just greed in your heart. So what is the solution, right? How do we root this out? I love 1 Timothy, which I know this is a lot of scripture, but it's a lot of good stuff here. Right? He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, 
to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Look what he said. He says, man, if you are wealthy and you are in the congregation, I want you to consider a few things. He says, I want you to be rich in good works, not just wealthy, right? I want you to be, consider how you can be generous. I want you to consider how you can leverage your finances for the kingdom of God. And that's a way that we root this out. But I think some practical steps. The first thing is this. Acknowledge that God is the giver of all good gifts. Man, just acknowledge that. Just say, God, you, everything comes from you. James just talked about that earlier. He says, every good gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no shadow due to change, right? He says, everything comes from God. We acknowledge that. Second thing is this. I think aim to be rich in good works. Focus on your character developments. It's so natural for us to be like, I need a financial advisor because I don't know what I'm doing and the stock market is crazy and all this stuff is happening, right? And that's great wisdom. But in the same way, we should be considering, how do I be rich in good works? Which means, man, let me join a community of believers. Let me ask them to speak into my life. Let me ask them to hold me accountable. Let, 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 them, let other people comment on how I even use my wealth. Let me ask for wisdom from those who are more uh, wise than me or have experience. And let me invite other people to develop me as a steward of this wealth so that I'm rich in character. So I'm building relationships with people so I'm aware of needs to be able to help them. Right? Let's, let's be people of good works. And then the last one is, man, consider giving. Right? Both to the church or to other organizations. That should be a regular habit of us as believers. We should be generous to give away our wealth. If we say, man, I just don't feel comfortable giving things away, or, and we need to ask ourselves, okay, man, is there misplaced priorities here? I want to move to our last point, and it's this. Hope in a compassionate and merciful God leads to reward. So James finally turns the corner and he says, okay, I've, I've talked about two popular places that people place their hope, but I want to push you towards the place where, I want, I, I, where you should push your hope, where you should put your hope. Look what he says in verse seven. Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And I love this because he's like, okay, I've just eliminated, like I've talked about and I've addressed planning and right this just boastful arrogance, and I've addressed this greed and this corruption that wealth can cause in our hearts. And he says, those two t- planning and wealth will fail you. And he says, I want you to turn. And I love what he says because he gives two really practical ideas when it comes to what does it look like to hope in God, right? He says to be patient. And then he says, do not grumble or do not complain against your brother. Now I want to pause before diving in those because our hope in Christ starts with a relationship with Christ, right? If, if, if our hope uh, is not in Jesus then, then trying to be patient and trying to not grumble or whatever is going to be really difficult for us, right? Our hope begins with the gospel of Jesus. 
right? If we want to be freed from these things or these, these idols, we want, to, we want to have a place, right? If you picture my daughter again, that, that safe place for us, it starts with the gospel. And what we believe, right, is that we have a sin issue. And what I love to tell people is it's not just like a far off issue, like, oh yeah, there's wars and death in the world. Although that's true, it's a sin issue in our own hearts. We are the problem. We produce sin and selfishness. Right? We grab, we are the ones who are greedy. We are the ones who uh, boast in our arrogance. And we need a savior. And what's amazing is that God sent Jesus, who walked among us, dwelled among us. Right? He w- was like us in every way. And then went to the cross, was crucified, murdered. Not, not in an arbitrary way, but to take on the sins of the world. Like all of the sins. All the wars and the sickness and the death that exists in the world, all the sin in our own hearts and the lust that we have and the lies that we hold on to were placed upon his shoulders. And he took it all and died. It was spent three days in the grave. And then the power of God raised him from the dead, signifying he has conquered sin and death. Now, what's amazing is that in the scriptures, it says, whoever believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. And what that means is you'll be forgiven of your sins. Your sins will be taken away from you. Well, I love the imagery, right, that, that the Bible portrays. It says your sins will be placed as far as the east is from the west, which is really far, okay, right? And then your sins will be taken away from you, and you will be given a new name, a new life. You will be a new creation, and nothing that you have done will be held against you if you believe in the name of Jesus. That's where our hope starts, and so often we as believers start there and then it's like, cool, like I'm saved and that's great. And now like I got to move on to like the varsity level stuff of Christianity. But no, we come back to that every single day. And what James is trying to tell them is, man, return back to that truth, right? That you have a savior who is compassionate and merciful towards you and who loves you. Look what he says. He says, be patient, and wait until the coming of the Lord. So that's the first application. He's like, be patient. That's what hope looks like right now. And some of you are like, I don't like being patient. I like stuff, right? And I'm like, I relate to that. That's me. Um, And he says, be patient. And what are we being patient for? He says, the coming of the Lord. He actually says it twice. He says it later in verse eight. Be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So when he says the coming of the Lord, what we believe as Christians, right, is that Jesus will come back for us. And while we walk in the spirit now and we, are, we have relationship with Christ, right, things are still not the way that they are supposed to be. But there is a day coming when sin and death and everything that is wrong with this world will be dealt with finally. Death will be eliminated from the face of the earth. And what James says is, Man, set your mind on that reality, that everything will be made right someday. Wait for it patiently. And he draws some farmer illustration here, which I'm like, as a gardener, I appreciate this, okay? Right, and he says, just like you put, right, seeds into the ground and you just have to wait, right? I I built a little garden bed and we put uh, little tulip bulbs um, in there and, and me and my son planted them. And then it was like, the next day, he's like, so like flowers? Like what? And I'm like, well, we gotta wait, uh, right, until like next spring when they, they come out, right? And it's like, we have to wait patiently for this. When we are facing hardship, illness, persecution, we lose our job, family strife, one of the commands we have is put our hope in God 
by waiting patiently, right? And saying, God, I'm setting my mind on the hope that is to come, that Jesus will make everything right someday. But there's also a second thing that he points out here. And he says, avoid grumbling or do not complain, right? This idea of grumbling is to, like, is to become frustrated and angry and, and, and why are things not the way that they're supposed to be? And, and this is not fair. And, and it's saying, man, that person, if they would just get out of the way, then everything would be good. That's, he says, avoid that. And he speaks harshly. And he says, there's actually judgment coming for that attitude. And that, that, that attitude is a sign that your hope is misplaced. Man, do not grumble. So why is this worth it? I think it's amazing. I want to keep reading here. He says, As an example, brothers, of suffering and patient, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those as blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So if you're feeling like, it's really hard to be patient and to not grumble, because I know a lot of people that are really annoying, right? And you're, it's like, you don't know my life, right? Like there's, and that's, amen, right? There's, there's people that are hard. And, and he says, take Job as an example. If you know the story of Job, right? He was a man of great wealth, had a large family. And, and Satan goes before the Lord and says, hey, I, I want to sift him. I think, he, I think he only follows you because of the stuff you've given him. And God says, okay, I'm going to allow this testing here. And Satan throws illness. He throws uh, natural disasters at him. His family, many of his sons and daughters are killed. Um, his wife asks him, hey, so much bad is happening. Will you just curse God already? Right? Job falls ill, and he loses almost everything he has except his life. And to make matters worse, his friends start visiting him, and they're like, hey, okay, Job, like, do you have like, sin that you need to deal with? Are you not right with God? And he's like, I think I'm right with God. Like, I think this is great. I don't know why this is happening. I'm just waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And if you've ever read the book of Job, it is very long. It's over 40 chapters, right? And it's just over and over, and Job is just in so much pain, so much ailment, and he has lost everything. But I want to read to you the end of the book of Job. Look at Job 42. I'm going to have it on the screen. And it says, Then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. He had seven sons and three daughters. And I love this part. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And that's how the book ends. And you see this patience in Job and perseverance yielded a reward in his life. Now, practically speaking, if we remain patient, the Lord doesn't always give us Job's deal right here. We don't, you don't get promised 140 years. But what is amazing is that even if we don't experience that reward in this life, there is a reward coming for us in the next. I love what Jesus told his disciples. Right? He's telling them in the Last Supper, he's talking to them. He's like, hey, I got to leave you guys. And they're like, where are you going? We'll follow you. And he's like, you can't go where I'm going. And they're like, yeah, we can't. And he's like, you can't. And then he says this phrase, and I just, I love it. He says, but I go before you and I prepare a place for you. Right? And so when the time comes, you will be with me. And he says, there's this, I'm going to pre prepare a place and reward for you that's waiting after death even. 
So no matter what happens, you know that you will be with me and you will be rewarded for your faithfulness. So we wait patiently and we refuse to grumble. I want to end by reading this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just think about that. What we currently experience, if you find yourself in hardship, it pales in comparison to the future glory waiting the saints. So as far as application goes, there's just two main points. I think the first one is this. Simply put, is to repent, right? It's this idea of let me turn away. If Man, if I've been caught up in planning and over planning and boasting in my plans, and I have found myself saying, man, when I think about my last year, did I bring anything to God? Did I even invite him into any decision that I, have, I had to make this year, right? About how I spend my time, about how I invest my money, about how I um, do this or that, or have I completely gone silent in inviting God in? And we need to repent of that, even as believers. We, have to, we need to repent of that mindset. The second thing, right, obviously is with our finances. We need to repent of the idol of trusting in our wealth. Man, if we've hoarded our wealth, let's, rep- let's repent of that. If we're unsure of how to use it, let's talk to people about it. Let's be rich in good works. Let's invite others into our lives to speak into our finances even. That could be scary. But we need one another. And then the last thing is this, walk in hope, right? Build in yourself this practice of patience. Refuse to grumble. And walk in the hope of Jesus. I gave a few applications, right? Of Let me spend time in prayer. Let me spend time reminding myself of the future, the second coming, that, that Jesus will make everything right someday. Let me just meditate on that. And what we're going to do, we're going to sing one last song uh, together and, man, just In that, just set your hope on God. Deal with God in whatever way that you need to. Right? If you need to repent and talk through uh, something with the Lord, do that. If you just need to remind yourself, man, this is who God is. I can place my hope in him. He is a sure foundation. Then do that. If you would, let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you just for your kindness. And we thank you for the book of James, which uh, maybe unlike any other book, calls sin, sin more clearly. And and God, we just thank you that uh, you don't mince, mince words. And I pray if you stirred something up in us, we would not just drop that. We would, we would deal with that. May we be a people, Father, that is wise with our time and our money plan well, but who also acknowledge the sovereignty of our God. Fill us with your spirit. Make us flexible. May we value the people and the souls that, we have, that you have created more than our plans and our finances. And may we hope in you. God, help us to do that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.